I hope you believe that this morning. The one that he declares free is free indeed. Go with me to Genesis chapter 1, if you would, if you have a Bible with you, that's great, or maybe you have it on your phone. Uh, if you don't have a hard copy, you might want to look at one. There's one in the rack in front of you. I know some of you are thinking, hey, how come we're not going to Romans? Well, we're going to do that in about four weeks. Uh, we're doing a, a short little series, and I'll explain that to you in just a minute. But right now, I'm going to ask you to go to Genesis 1. And while you're doing that, I'm going to catch up on some details related to the finances of the church. I know normally John Palmer does that for you, but I'm going to share this as a lead into where we're going this morning. I think you'll find this really encouraging, especially for what's happened in the last couple of weeks here at the church. Um, first thing I want you to know before you see one of the financial numbers on the screen is that on Christmas Eve weekend, the, the Sunday morning two services before Christmas Eve and on Christmas Eve itself, there were 1,500 people in this building. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And um, a thousand of those uh, were on Christmas Eve itself, and if you were in the five o'clock service, you felt like they were all in your service, right? Because if you were in like the stairwells, you know what that felt like. There were people lined up in the stairwells trying to sit and people on each other's laps. And here's the most significant thing, though. I know of 20 individuals who prayed to receive Christ that night. That's awesome, right? Yeah. So, you have really good reason to applaud that loudly, and you're going to be tempted to applaud even more loudly the next thing that you see financially, but always let that be preeminent, that God's bringing people to Christ, and that's what we really want to celebrate. So here's some financial numbers I want you to see. Um, first of all, we have this thing called the Compassionate Care Fund, and there's individuals here at the church that oversee that and distribute that. In the month of December, $6,000, roughly a little bit more than that, came into that fund, and that's a great thing if you're not familiar with it. Here's the reason why it's a significant part of New Hope. The individuals who oversee that fund use that to distribute to individuals who, for instance, can't pay their power, car, uh, their power bill, or perhaps they need a car repair done, or perhaps they can't um, take care of costs like diapers for their children. That compassionate care fund is New Hope loving on each other. So that's why that's in place. Here's the next thing I want you to see. The general fund for the month of December had $129,000 come in. It's fantastic for the month of December. Here's a really significant number on top of that. The moving forward, which is our building fund, that had this come in, $760,000 in the month of December. That's astounding, church, right? That's like, wow, okay? That rate's really, really high that three-quarters of a million dollars can come in within four weeks, and, and that's from multiple sources, multiple individuals being involved. So you need to see the total income for the month of December. For the month of December, the total income was $897,000. Now, let's talk about the, building for, the moving forward fund, the building fund. Um, some of you are new and you don't know that perhaps we're building a building or maybe you've driven past it on East Saginaw Highway. We expect perhaps that we'll be able to actually occupy that space in the month of May if the building project stays online. It might be the month of June. But right now, in, in any event, this is where we're at. The total cash and commitments that have been received for the moving forward fund at this point are $5,720,000, 417. So this is huge because you might remember two weeks before Christmas, I stood before this congregation and said, it looks like the building costs are going to be somewhere between $6.4 and $6.5 million. And at that point, we knew that we had 5.1 committed. In four weeks' time, God has reduced it to such a degree that there's only about $700,000 left to go. So when we move into that new facility, we very well could be completely debt-free, church. That would be awesome, right? Whether that's the day or not that that actually happens, I look forward to standing before you and telling you when that actually happens. But God's on the move. He's bringing people to Christ, which is the most significant thing, bringing people into the kingdom. And he's growing the church, and he's moving us to a new location, and he's given us green light after green light after green light. So it's really great to be part of what God's doing. I'm glad to share this with you. Now, to move over into why we're doing what we're doing for these next four weeks, I ask you to go to Genesis 1.1. We'll get to that in just a minute. Here's what we're going to do. We're taking these four weeks to kind of lay some foundational clarification issues about what we believe here at New Hope. 
And so Rich Bruce came to me back in September, and he leads the discipleship area of New Hope, and he said, Mark, there's a lot of people who are being added to our church family. Do you think that we could take a couple weeks and just talk through some of the basics about what we believe about the Word of God and why we believe what we believe? And I said, yeah, let's, that's great. Let's start off the new year, and we'll do that in, in, in January. So Rich has been working on this little booklet since the beginning of September, and this is something you're going to get. There's no cost to this. It's be stacked on the table as you leave this morning, and it's called His Story, or History, if you would prefer it that way. His story is about God's story, and here's why I want to share this with you and why we're so determined to do it. You have a story to tell, and you may find yourself in conversations with friends at work or maybe at a restaurant, and occasionally somebody might say to you, why do you believe what you believe? And if you find yourself being left without an answer to that question, you have to understand that you have a story, and your story is found in His story. So each of these four weeks are intended to design for you to get to the end of the four weeks and be able to actually physically write down your story. So there's blank spots in the back of the book for you to write down the record of your journey so that you can share it with other people. In that way, you can speak into others' lives. One of the things that we're going to do this period of time for these four weeks is we're introducing a new element, and that will be that you can text your questions in during the message. So while we're working through these materials, and you'll find some of this stuff's pretty meaty this morning, you can text in a question that might pop in your mind. So Derek brought up a Google number. He's going to put it up on the screen. You can store this in your phone. This is something that we're going to save, and you'll be able to use it in future weeks, not just these four weeks, but weeks ahead. We've been doing Q&A in the Saturday night service for four years now. But we thought it would be great to bring that element into the morning services. So if we, as we talk about creation this morning, if as we talk about who God declares you to be, questions pop in your mind, grab that number, text your question to that number, and then they're going to put them up on the screen in a little bit after we work through part of this conversation this morning. Before we do any of that, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. So how about if we pray together, church? Lord God, we come to you with a sense of anticipation that you are about to reveal yourself in ways that maybe some of us have never seen before. And we have questions and we want answers, but more than that, we, we do want to understand better who we are to you. And that really, in truth, when you declare something, it is what you say it to be. We would walk in such a greater degree of confidence if we could remember that, Father. So I ask for clarity for us this morning, and that will happen through the work of the Holy Spirit, who's going to guide us. We ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You students of Romans are going to love where we're starting here, Romans 7, verse 15. No, we're not doing the book of Romans, but remember what we looked at in Romans 7, 15. I am not practicing what I would like to do, Paul said, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. Or if you go forward four more verses into verse 19, he said, for the good things that I want to do, I'm not doing those. I'm, I'm doing the very evil that I don't want to do. Can you identify with that? We don't have to do a show of hands. Perhaps here you are in January, on the 13th day of January, and you already find yourself doing the things that you determined you were not going to do when you were back in December. Or the things that you were going to do, you find yourself not doing. Maybe you said, I'm, I'm going to spend more time in the Bible in 2019, or I'm going to lose weight, or I'm going to get better control of my finances. And already you find yourself saying, I'd like a restart button on the month of January. I'd like to do that over. Or maybe you're saying, I'm, I'm not doing the very things that I said I wanted to, but I also find myself doing the things I said I wouldn't do. And you find yourself falling back into that same defeating cycle. Paul is writing of an intellectual rebellion when he writes that. The things I know I'm supposed to do, I'm not doing. What's going on here? Why am I this way? And I would be honest with you and say that's a rebellion that is very true in my own life. Even in my more advanced, mature Christian walk, I find the capacity to slide back into former behavior. What's going on with that? Well, the reality is it's because I forget who I am. I forget who God declares me to be. I have a failure to remember my new identity in Christ, who God declares me to be. 
We have a particular goal for these next four weeks. And that goal is that you would know who God declares you to be. And that He has the right to declare who you are. This four-part study was intended to realign our thinking of the big picture so we can take on 2019 completely differently. And it's not just a great mental exercise. It is that. There's a lot of information coming up in what we're talking about here. But if it's just information for the sake of information, then it fails. This is actually an act of worship. This is a way for you to give the Creator the honor that's due Him. And I promise you, it will affect the person who sits across the table from you, the person in the cubicle next to you at work, the person who has a locker in your hallway. It will affect how you talk to other people about why you believe what you believe. At New Hope, we have this principle that we adhere to, and it goes like this. What you believe about God determines what you do. What you believe about God determines what you do. So if you believe that God is angry, that God is selfish, that He's vindictive, that God is mean, that's going to flesh out in your walk, in the way that you act in front of people. But if you believe that God is caring, if you believe that God is close, if you believe that God is forgiving... That's going to affect what you do. So what you believe about God determines what you do next, I would say. I contend for you, my view on that, what I believe, I'm talking about Mark Kring here. I contend that the creator of this massive universe that we live in, that one who in this very moment, in this hour, while you sit here in this auditorium, he's being attended to by myriads upon myriads upon myriads of holy angels. And that one willingly left his throne of glory because of massive love for you. Do you believe that? I hope you do. I believe that about our God. And further, I would say, I also contend that God continually wants good for you. Keep that in the forefront of your mind. These four weeks will have greater meaning if you do. We don't just want it to be information. We want it to be transformational. So in this first week, we're going to travel back as far as we can in time to the time before time, Genesis 1.1. If you have your Bible, go ahead and look there with me, but otherwise look up on the screen, and it starts out this way, and it says, in the beginning. It's the first stroke of the first second of the first clock before anything else, and it's perhaps the most recognizable statement on planet earth regarding the Bible. Even school-age children can finish the thought. In the beginning what? Well, everybody knows, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that's seven words in the Hebrew language, the way that it was originally written, and it's the foundation of everything that flows out of the Bible. It's the foundation of all that is stated. It starts this way, in the beginning, and it's the Hebrew word bereshith. I don't know if that's significant to you. You can write it down, and I'll explain what it's saying here. But notice this. It doesn't say when. It just says that it was, that it was the very first phase of the universe. I said to you two weeks before Christmas that time starts with the beginning of the universe. Whatever is before that is eternal. Evolutionists and creationists agree there is a beginning point. There's a point when everything started. So whatever's before that point, whatever did not exist in the universe before that point is eternity. And then God said, in the beginning, everything started and the first clock clicks. There has never been a point, according to the Bible, when God did not exist there's a point when the universe did not exist, but there's never been a point when God did not exist. And by that, I mean the God ahead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit has always been and will forever be according to God's own word. And we're told that He's self-existent, meaning that He doesn't need anything. So if you think that God created out of loneliness, you need to recorrect your thinking. God says, I am that I am. When Moses said, what should I call you? God's response is, tell them, I am that I am, which means I'm self-existent. 
I am everything encompassing. So God did not create out of loneliness. He's complete. So we find evidence of that, the everlasting to everlasting in the book of Psalms. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now get this point really clear in your head. That God who spoke everything into existence, that God wanted you. Do you believe that? I'm going to keep checking with you on that. Because God says, you are who I declare you to be, and I want you, and I pursue you, and I want a love relationship with you, and he wants good for you. Regardless of how you arrived on this planet, you're part of God's plan. He has a purpose for you being here, and it's up to you to discover how he wants to use you. Therefore, I would say to you, the Godhead created. All three members of the Godhead were present at creation. And we know that from statements within the Bible, things that God has revealed. Let me give you an example of that. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Do you notice that that's completely plural? And I did not capitalize that. That's in the original text. That's God's statement. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. If you're looking for evidences of the Trinity, in the book of Genesis, there you go. As a matter of fact, you find it in verse 1 and in verse 2. But we also find it in the New Testament that Jesus is spoken of as the instrument by which everything was spoken into existence. Look with me on the screen. Colossians 1.16, speaking of Jesus. For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth. So God the Son is the instrument through which creation is done. Now let's go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we nailed that first part, Bereshith. Bereshith is in the beginning. So your book of Genesis in the Bible that you have in your hand right now is called the book of beginnings or the book of origins. And you get a sense of your origin. Where did I come from? That's Bereshith in the beginning. Here's the next word that Moses wrote down. Bereshith Elohim. And Elohim is God, but Elohim in the Hebrew language is plural. And all of a sudden, in verse 1, Genesis chapter 1, a verse 1, the very first verse, is already speaking of not singular, but the Godhead, the plurality of God. So Elohim, and Elohim, look at the definition on the screen, specifically used in the plural of the supreme God. And Moses makes no attempt whatsoever to validate the existence of God. It's just assumed that He is. His existence is, and so it's stated as fact. And we come to the third word, Barah. Bereshit, Elohim, Barah, which is the word created. And this word can only be used of God. In the Hebrew language, it's only used three times in the creation story. The creation of the universe the creation of the created elements, and the creation of humankind, bara, and God created. Used only of God, never associated with anything man can do. Now, that's the technical side of it. Why do we need to know all that? Why do we even need to look at the Hebrew text? Because it has implications here. What you and I believe about the creation story, His story, has implications it has implications regarding the truthfulness of Scripture. If God says you're set free from your sin that you committed yesterday, how do you know that you actually are? How do you know that God is actually intending for you to join Him in heaven one day and not going to send you to hell in a fit of rage? How do you know that what you hold in your hand is actually truthful? Well, it's rooted here. You have to be able to believe the Word of God. So it has implications regarding the truthfulness of Scripture, and it has implications regarding God's right to declare who you are. You are who I see. You say I am who you say I am, and you say I've been set free, God. See, what we believe has implications. So immediately at the outset, at the very beginning of God's Word, you've been faced with a choice. Either I believe that God did, or He did not. What do I do with that? 
Do I believe, regardless of what I think I've been hearing from school systems, that I have been created by God, or did I actually evolve? You either evolved from primordial soup, or you have a loving God who has pursued a loving relationship with you and spoke humanity into existence. What do I believe about God? See, the issue is not just biological. It is biological, to be sure. We'll get into that in just a second, but it's also moral and it's spiritual, and it's certainly ethical. Dr. Kelly actually frames the argument really well. I want you to see his quote, and I'll show you why I wanted to use this. This is what he wrote. There is no doubt that the biblical vision of man as God's creature, whom he made in his own image, has had the most powerful effect on human dignity, on liberty, on the expansion of the rights of the individual, on political systems, on the development of medicine, on every other area of culture. Now, I stop there, but his quote goes on quite a ways, and this is why I'm not including it. I would encourage you to pick up his writings, pick up his book. He wrote about this issue of the view of mankind, but here's his argument. From the evolutionistic side of the argument... It has been used to discriminate against humanity to the degree that Marx, Stalin, Adolf Hitler used it to exterminate millions upon millions upon millions of people with a view that man is nothing more than a protoplasm waiting to become manure, that we aren't actually created in the design of God. Why make this point that Douglas Kelly is making here? Because as evolution attempts to strip Scripture of its authority in the process, what it's doing, and maybe unintended, but here's what it's doing. It's stripping man of the dignity of humankind as created in the image of God, that we are who he declares us to be. And I would go on one step to say, if evolution is true, you actually have no ethical rights. How can you have ethical rights if you're devoid of a soul? You can't evolve a soul So what do you do if you don't actually have a soul? You have no ethical rights. And if you're just a chance mutation, if you're just an accident, then what's your purpose here on this earth in 2019? Why do you actually exist? If you've never read the intro to The Origin of the Species, you actually need to read what J.W. Burrow put down. And this will help you frame your thinking around The Origin of the Species. Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species in 1858 J.W. Burrow was hired to write an introduction to the origin of the species in 1966 because he was the foremost atheist in the country at that time. The publisher chose him to write about this issue because he knew that J.W. Burrow had a good understanding of what Darwin's approach was on the evolution of the species. I want you to read what he wrote. Nature, according to Darwin, was the product of blind chance and a blind struggle, and man, a lonely, intelligent mutation, scrambling with the brutes for his sustenance. It was as if an umbilical cord had been cut, and men found themselves part of a cold, passionless universe. He is a lonely, intelligent mutation produced out of chance. He is a protoplasm waiting to become manure. How do you like that view of yourself, right? Did that make you think a little higher of yourself or less of yourself? See, the argument is that it strips the dignity of humankind of their dignity if you believe that you actually evolved and you weren't a design of God. That's J.W. Burroughs' view. And he's saying evolution is the result of random chance. It's the source of everything that exists. And I would argue if you remove the God of Genesis, that's what you're left with. You're left with random chance. And the argument would be this. Chance is the cause. And you can't let God be the cause. So something has to be the cause. So the cause is random chance. And I would say chance is not a force. Chance can't create anything. And I say it for this reason. If God is not sovereign over all, then He's not God. If He's not creator, ruler, sustainer, and sovereign over His entire universe, then He's not God. And if He's not God, then chance rules. So God has to remind us of who He is and who we are. Isaiah 46.9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Amen. 
Do you know that Darwin had a hard time with Darwin? If you've never read The Origin of the Species, you need to go to chapter 6 and read what Darwin wrote about his own findings. I happen to have a piece of it here. Let me show you from 1858. Long before having arrived at this part of my work, a crowd of difficulties will have occurred to the reader. Some of them are so grave that to this day I can never reflect on them without being staggered. Such simple instincts as bees making a beehive could be sufficient to overthrow my whole theory. And to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting to the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of the spherical and chromatic aberration, could evolve by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. I'm guessing your ninth grade biology teacher may not have told you that he said that. There's a very good chance you've never heard that Darwin struggled with Darwin. Why? Because of the created order. It's so obvious. God said, it's here. It's evident for everyone to see. Romans 1 says people are going to eventually turn away to myth because they want to deny that there's a creator God. So I asked this question, what was at the heart of God? Well, it's because of myth that God has to clarify for us our origins and his declaration over for us, over us. John 1.3, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So what was at the heart of God when he told Moses to write, Bereshith, Elohim, Barah. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. Here's what I think was at God's heart, because it's littered throughout the Bible. He knows that we are prone to turn aside to the fabrications of mankind. He knows that we are prone to forget. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? We are prone to forget who we are. So God has to clarify. Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. New Hope, if you believe that, would you just say amen right now? That's God's declaration of who He is and who we are. And He knows that we need to be reminded of this because we're prone to forget. So the record of your origin doesn't exist. It doesn't serve to validate God's existence. This this is not a science book. But where it speaks to science, it's authoritative. Wherever God speaks to science, it's the authority. But it's not existing as a science book. What you hold in your hands this morning is His express desire to communicate and to preserve your perspective of who you are and why you're valuable. Bereshit Elohim Barah. It was written for a unique component of God's creation. It wasn't written for the whales. It wasn't written for the eagles, and it wasn't written for your puppy dog. It was written for you, so that you would remember who your creator is and to whom you will owe your allegiance. So Genesis is the declaration that I belong to God. And he doesn't give us details of how he did it. He just says, you got to have faith that I did it. Look at the book of Hebrews with me on the screen. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And in knowing this, you gain a sense of your true worth and your purpose and foremost that God as your creator has the right to declare over you who you are, what you actually are. Now, logically, somebody's going to say, okay, Mark, I get this. If, if the universe is the product of this creator, if he's infinite in all his power and he's infinite in all his wisdom, how in the world can I know anything about him? He is so far removed from me. Well, the only way you can know anything about him is if he chooses to reveal himself because we're the natural and he's the supernatural. We're locked in space and time. How are we going to know? Well, that's why you hold your Bible in your hands, because God says, I choose to reveal. So there's things, he says, you can know through natural revelation. You can look at the human eye. Darwin did, and he said, I I confess, this is a tripping point. 
You can look at the human eye and say, this is something magical that could not have evolved. But that's natural revelation. God has to give us special revelation to really understand His nature and character and to understand why things are the way they are in 2019. And one of the details He chooses to reveal to us about His nature and character and why things are the way they are on our planet right now is He wants us to know this detail, that we're not the only ones. That He created a higher order of beings Unless you think I'm about to talk about E.T., I'm here to tell you I'm not, okay? He created a higher order of beings called angels. Now, just stay with me on the flow of this. And this is where some of you are going to want to write down your, your questions and text them into that number because it's going to trigger some thinking for you. God created a higher order of beings. We call them angels. We know from the Bible this is an unlimited number of beings. We can't calculate them. And they're sinless in their origin, and we know the timetable of when they were created because God chose to tell us. He created them before the start of the universe. Let me go with you to the text, and I want to show you what God had to say. And I'll take you to the book of Job for this. If you've never read the book of Job before, I would encourage you to do it. It's in the Old Testament. And Job, let's just say it this way, he was having a pretty bad stretch of time. Okay? Um, life was not good. His world had been turned upside down, not just financially, but with his family. And in that setting, he got to chapter 38, and he began to challenge why things were happening to him the way they were happening to him. And so he actually said this, when God shows up, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Well, God did show up, chapter 38, and he showed up in a tornado. And then he said this to Job. Stand up and brace yourself like a man, for I will question you and you will answer me. And then Job said, I didn't mean it. All right? But look with me at chapter 38 and verse 4. This is God speaking. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Watch this in verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, praise you, Father. God, look at this creation. The angels were there at the start. They were there created to see the universe spoken into existence. So the angels are already there before God created the earth. And we know from the Bible that they exist outside of our fabric of time, outside of our universe, yet God allows them to step through the fabric of time. Stay with me on this. This fits in perfectly to the flow of Bereshit bara Elohim bara. We're told that these angels exist as a warrior class, that they're bigger, stronger, smarter, faster than us. And they've been around for a long, long time, so they know a whole lot more about Earth's history than we do. And these individuals who are called the warriors of heaven exist in three ranks. The first rank is those who are called the messenger angels. I've had individuals after the first service and last night after the Saturday night service ask, do I think that Michael and Gabriel are part of that messenger class? Absolutely. I'll show you why in just a minute. So you've got the messenger angels, and then the next class you have are called the seraphim. Isaiah writes about the seraphim, and Revelation writes about the seraphim. They are orange, glowing, reddish in their appearance, and according to Isaiah, they have six wings. With two, they cover their eyes. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. And according to Isaiah, they cry out, holy, 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 and it echoes an antiphonal praise off the walls of heaven. And then you have the third, the highest rank of angels, and that's called the cherubim. And the cherubim are the highest of God's created order from what we understand in Scripture. Nothing more beautiful, nothing more powerful, nothing more intellectual than those individuals. And the Bible records that the cherubim, regardless of the image you have in your mind from modern artwork, get that out of your head. Because God says they're perfect in their appearance like a glowing, radiant, transparent diamond. They apparently attend to the Ark of the Covenant. They apparently guarded the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword. And today, they surround the base of the throne of God. They make up the base of the throne. Ezekiel writes about them. 
Ezekiel 1.10, as for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man, all four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. I've never seen anything like that. And Ezekiel's doing the very best that he can to describe it. And the cherubim are close to the throne of God, the closest to the throne of God. Keep that thought in mind as you read Psalm 99.1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, the highest of His created order. Or this one, Isaiah 37. O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone one particular cherubim was known as the bright morning star. He's called the Halel, the one who was so brilliant in his appearance that he was shining brighter than all the others. I want you to actually see his name because in English we call him Lucifer. But Lucifer is known as Halel, the brightest one the bright morning star, and he's of the highest order. He's at the closest place. He's at the throne of God. And at some point in eternity past, God decided to take that one, Halel, Lucifer, and anoint him above the other cherubim and elevate him to a place of superior status. So watch what God says in Ezekiel 28, 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. So Satan, in his original creation, was flawless, absolutely perfect, and a cherub at the throne of God, literally called the shining one or the light bearer. Now review this with me. You've got the messenger angels who are surrounding the throne of God. You've got the seraphim who fly around it, and with their six wings they glorify God. And then you have the cherubim who actually in some way seem to support the base of the throne of God. And the closer you are to the throne, the higher the rank of that person. It gives great clarity, by the way, to the conversation that Jesus had with James and John. Do you remember when James and John said, Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we have the chair right next to your throne? And Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking. You guys, you can't even get this in your mind. Do you know what you're thinking? That's another story. So, So we've got this elevated position. And next week, you're going to see Jesus say this about Lucifer. Luke 10, 18. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Do you notice something spectacular in that statement, church? His name has been changed. He's no longer Halel. He's no longer Lucifer. He's no longer the bright, shining one. He's now known as Satan, the very adversary of God. Why? Because God changes your name to match your character. You are who I declare you to be. I am who you say I am. God declared that he had an adversary one who rose up and stood against God. And you need to understand the magnitude of that statement. Satan was created in perfect design. He had the ability to make contrary choice. You don't have that ability. You and I were born into sin. We inherited it from our ancestors. He was created perfect. He had contrary choice. Do I choose to rebel or do I choose to stay holy? You had to become holy through the work of Jesus. So Jesus, we need to understand the magnitude of this statement because of the universal destruction that Satan brought when he brought sin. And because of sin, everything is radically different from the original creation. There's a reason dogs bite. There's a reason why we have homeless people and children without parents on this planet. There's a reason for typhoons and earthquakes and tsunamis. Because of sin, because sin has melted and destroyed God's creation. Scripture emphasizes this this is the catastrophic result of sin, and it didn't just affect humanity. Yeah, we're like Paul, and we can say, why do I do the things that I do? I don't want to do those. But it also affected all of creation. Look with me at Romans 8.20. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Now, if something's going to be set free, there has to be one capable of setting it free. We know him as Jesus. He came to set things free. He came to restore what Satan has destroyed. If you don't know this and you're new to church, you need to understand this. God defeated Satan decisively at the cross of Jesus. The cross was absolutely the final nail in the coffin of his rebellion. We'll get into the discussion of Satan next week and what he actually did to this planet. But you need to know this going into these next six days before you come back next weekend. Satan cannot send you to eternal separation from God. Satan cannot send you to hell. Only God decides that issue based on your decision about who Jesus is. God alone has the authority to declare whether or not you belong to him or not. He knows who are his and those who are not his. And it's all based on the relationship with Jesus. Now, I suspect that this has triggered questions, things that may have popped in your mind. And maybe a few of you have texted in. What we're going to try and do is take on two or three of the questions that this may be triggered, and then we'll close it out. And believe me, I'm not going to hold you here long, depending on how complicated your questions are, of course. But we'll close this out in just a minute with some thoughts you need to carry out the door with you. Derek, did we have some questions come in? Okay, got one. Where did God live before he created the heavens and the earth? Where he still reigns today, when you think of the heavens and the earth, you need to understand that there's three levels of heavens in Scripture. So what we have around us in the atmospheric where the birds fly and where the airplanes fly, the Bible calls that heaven because it's part of our atmosphere. And then it calls space, the universe, where the stars and the solar system are at. It calls that heaven. So when God created the heavens and the earth, he created the universe as we know it. That's called heaven. But the heaven that we use in the description of the book of Revelation, that's known as the third heaven, and that's the dwelling place of God. He doesn't need a place. He's, he's self-containing, but according to Scripture, as best we know, that's where he exists. Still today, outside of the fabric of time and before the universe existed, that's where he was at. Beyond that, I can't speak to it because Scripture doesn't give us clarity on it. Let's go to the next question. If someone doesn't believe in the Bible, how would you try to explain the Trinity to them? Kyle Denny's watching online right now, apparently, because I know he's home with Chelsea. Thanks, Kyle, for that easy question. Appreciate that, buddy. I'll see you tomorrow. Um. That question came in in the last service also, and I would answer it this way, regardless if a person's in the auditorium or not. Theologians, believers, readers of the Bible have tried to explain the Trinity for millennia. We can't. And, and God hasn't chosen to explain it to us. It's just that it is. There's a Father, a Son, and the Holy Spirit, one which operate in three and I don't know how to help a person understand that because it's difficult for me to get it through my head. I've struggled with this one for years and years and years. How do you make something so complex simple? I, I wish I could give you an easy answer, but I can't. So let's accept the fact that God says that it is, and he gives evidence of it, but he doesn't give us the answer for how we understand it. Let's go to the next one. Can an angel appear as a human to us out of nowhere? Yeah, the Bible actually says that some have entertained angels unaware. And we see evidences of that in Scripture, that angels show up, make an appearance as a human in human form without us even knowing that they were there. And some realize afterwards, always to accomplish God's purposes, always to deliver the information God wants delivered. Let's go to the next one. If God is God and He would have known Okay, if God is God, then he would have known he created. I don't think you mean put him in a box. You mean created, created Satan to do what he did. Oh, I think I know where this question's going. Um, why did he create Satan, right? Why did he create Lucifer if he knew that Lucifer was going to rebel? 
Have you ever asked yourself that question? If God knows everything and he knew this world was going to fall apart, why not just scratch it? Let's go with plan B. You're going to think my response to this is because somebody sent in a ringer question, but I would tell you this actually is a question I have been most asked in my entire life over and over and over and over again. I'll give you my response to it and you see if you want to repeat it to someone else. To grasp the magnitude of that statement is to understand that it troubles all of humanity when they see children who are kidnapped, homes that are wiped out, disease, and they say, why? Why is it like this? We'll talk a lot next week about what Satan did and the effects of sin. But just frame your thinking around this this week. We need to grasp the glory of God. And the glory of God is that He does everything that He does to bring glory to Himself. So when He elevated Lucifer, the anointed cherub who covers, it wasn't for Lucifer's benefit, it was for God to get greater glory. When Lucifer goes into rebellion, he's the highest of God's created order. So we've got the greatest created being created who chooses to rebel against God. And we have you and I, the lesser. The lesser created beings with a choice whether or not we're going to rebel against our God or we're going to choose to follow Him. So when the greater is in rebellion against him and refuses to give God glory, and he has his created entities, you and I, who choose to willingly follow him and give our lives to him, does God get glory out of that? Does God get glory when the lesser who is not living in rebellion against him and the greater is living in rebellion against him? Does God take the lesser and show the greater, look what I can do, even though you're living in rebellion against me? Even though, Lucifer, you had all this knowledge, all this wisdom, and all this beauty, look at the lesser. They choose to follow me and accept the grace that I offer them. So God gets grace out of glory, glory out of grace, and God gets glory out of you choosing to follow, and God gets glory when his creation is not in rebellion against him. I don't know if you can sum that up for someone across the table like I just did for you. It's taken me a lot of years to really get that down. We'll talk about it more next week. But ultimately, Satan said, I exalt myself above the throne of God. I will be like God. I will be the Most High. And that's why Jesus said, I was there when Satan fell from heaven like lightning. Immediate judgment. To grasp that question is to grasp the glory of God. I'm going to pray for us as we step into this last portion, but just hear me out on this. I want to send you out each week with a degree of encouragement. When you pick up that booklet on your way out the door this morning, hear this. The most important thing when you work through that booklet is what comes into your mind when you think about God. What do I believe about God? Because what I believe about God determines what I do. So the questions you're going to address each day in your four-week journey is this. Who is God? And who am I in relation to Him? And by the end of it, you're going to find your story in His story. You're going to find your story in history. And along the way, I'm going to continue to encourage you with reminders. So let me just send you out the door with this. If as the Creator God, He has the capacity and the authority to declare this universe into existence, does He not also have the authority and the capacity to declare who you are? Scripture says He does. Let me show you what He declares about you if you believe in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Why? Because the old is messed up. The old was in rebellion against him. 
But if you're in Jesus, you're a new creation. God has the right to declare that over you. To say that you belong to me and I have given you a new beginning. I'm not sure, church, that I can hear that often enough. I don't know about you. Because I find myself like Paul with this intellectual rebellion. Why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? We tend to forget who we are. That we're a new creation. And God says, I made you and I can declare you new. So take on this week like a new creation. Will you do that? Take on this week like you walk in the power and the authority of a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, for every one of us in this auditorium, for those who are watching online right now, give us a sense of the aroma of the fragrant fragrance of the, of the freshness of belonging to you of what it is to be the redeemed of the Lord. Father, it so quickly escapes from our mind. Some will forget by this afternoon. And we'll find ourselves falling back into old patterns of behavior. Remind us over and over and over again. God, I ask it even in a supernatural way. Remind us what it means to be in Christ Jesus, our Savior. And to walk as those who are the redeemed. So we ask for something that can only be done by our memory and by the Holy Spirit giving us reminders for a reason, Father. Not that we would be more saved, but that we would reflect truly the grace that's been poured out on us. And in fact, God, that we might also be an influence to others who are looking and searching and wondering. I pray for that for our church. I pray for that for our growing church family. Be intimate to us this week, Father. I pray for that in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.